2: C13 Originals.
1: I always, from a very early age, always felt like I didn't listen to the right music that people wanted. It was always like that. So when I was 13, 14, we listened to Early Genesis and Peter Gabriel's first solo records, and Eno's 70s solo records. That was when I was like 12, 13, that was it. Like Peter Gabriel was like God to me. The voice would come on and you know, we'd be in the bedroom and
2: like, oh, oh my
1: God, you know? Looking for something, things. like, oh. He still is to me, he will always be. And then I remember in 1980, the first Pretenders album. I played that record so many times. I thought it was the greatest record I'd ever heard. I still think it's one of the greatest records of all time. Pretenders one. For those of you who haven't heard it, you must listen to that record. It's a masterpiece. And those two things didn't go together. And then I listened to The Residents a lot. I loved The Residents in high school and and the first B-52s record. And I don't know, maybe that was just what was around, but it was all fair game and we wanted to steal from all of them. I remember listening to English Settlement by XTC and trying to, how do they write those songs? You know, and covered a couple songs from that record in fish and it was never aligned with we never felt in touch with what was popular or what we were supposed to be it just complete you know sometimes we'll call it being in this band is like being in the island of misfit toys you know what i mean what are you doing singing that song that's not (laughs) and then ending up doing classic rock too i don't know the white album I still feel that way,
3: I still feel that way. That's Fish guitarist Trey Anastasio, describing some of the artists who have inspired him and whose wide-ranging work the band has blended into its own sonic palette. These expansive tones have colored the group's inventive efforts and altered perceptions about what is a suitable spectrum of sounds. In this episode, we're going to visit the Island of Misfit Toys. And even though that reference originated with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, a Christmas classic, we're going to focus on the pagan holiday of Halloween and intone a Jewish prayer as well. I'm Dean Budnick, and this is Long May They Run. Trey's initial comments regarding his early listening habits were prompted in part by a story that I shared with him and a number of other people I interviewed for the podcast. Back in the mid-80s, around the time that Fish formed up in Burlington, a friend of mine was a college DJ. His favorite two bands at the time were Minutemen and the Grateful Dead. These two groups seem altogether complementary to many people today, and they certainly approach music from a similar DIY punk ethos. However, my friend would play these two artists back to back, first Minutemen, then Grateful Dead, And the phones in the studio would light up, full of enraged listeners taking umbrage at the fact that he dared to juxtapose the music of these two groups.
1: The Princeton University College radio station is where I got a lot of my music. I remember hearing the first song from Discipline by King Crimson on Princeton University College radio. I think college radio and FM radio was the way that a lot of people consumed music in the late 70s that and then vinyl purchases that you had to wait for the record to come out it was a big deal but you heard a lot of music through college radio you know in a college radio station the Minutemen and the dead would go right after each other why not and then king sunny a day and then you know what i mean that's the way i remember it i had a college radio station when i was a freshman at uvm and i used to play all that stuff our first road manager andrew fishbeck listened to one album so much so that we finally had to just shut him down, but he listened to Double Nickels on the Dime over and over in the in the truck. That's it. It's like everything else sucked. He had basically one album that he liked. <laughs> so, you know, same with like, you know, Pavement was when that all happened in the early 90s. That was on Permaloop everywhere I went, every party I went to, in the car, everything. For a couple of years, that's all I listened to was Pavement. But there's another thing. I listen to a lot of music, almost to the point where I'm going deaf. Like, I listen to music the second I wake up until the second I go. I'm obsessed with listening to music, much to my wife's dismay to a certain degree. Whatever it is, you know, it's just been a lifetime obsession. I like early Broadway records. And that, I almost wear that as a point of pride now because my entire life, people have been like, how can you like that shit? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Yes, I go see South Pacific and weep at Lincoln Center. Yes, Oscar Hammerstein is the greatest lyricist who ever lived. I'll have that debate with you all day long. <laughs> I think he probably was. I don't know. That's not cool or something like that. And yes, the Minutemen are great.
3: Both. They're both great and yes, they'd be on the same playlist. Still, while that may have been true for Trey, because he was so obsessed with music growing up, it wasn't for most people back in the mid-80s. That's changed, though, as many genre boundaries have collapsed or become less relevant. Part of the story is the rise of platforms like iTunes, Pandora, and Spotify that have made it easy to hear so many varied sounds. However, for a certain subset of music listeners, One significant factor has also been the curatorial role of fish. Mike Gordon also emphasizes the impact of Freeform FM radio, which debuted in the late 1960s as an alternative to AM pop radio. Unlike AM radio, which focused on officially released singles that typically lasted from two and a half to four minutes, FM radio opted for deeper cuts without similar time constraints. FM rock stations came into their own during the 1970s when all four members of Fish began tuning in.
4: I'm sure it is for all the band members, but starting with FM radio, it was just huge for me. And I had a long commute because I went to Jewish day school and we had a carpool. So it was long going and it was long coming back and through the 70s. And it was all the 70s. Uh, a few months ago, we did this game with my daughter, went on Spotify, and we found some playlists. She was DJing from the back seat. And it was like rock hits of the 70s. And I was allowed one note to see if I could call the song. And 90% of the time I got it. And sometimes that one note is like a kick drum hit. And talk about, you know, an era where they were willing to make each song sound differently. And my emotional, well, this is true of anyone, I guess, in their childhoods, but my emotional phases were framed and colored by certain songs that played on the radio. And it's almost like having this crush or something on a person. It's really the song. It's really not the person. (laughs) Starting with some Beatles stuff and going on to some other stuff that was played on the radio. And I don't know what happened there. And it just seems like the 70s was a time when people realized, oh, the studio can be this incredible art form where we can just It's almost uncharted territory because we're realizing, you know, one band can put in elements of jazz and classical and another band can just get crazy with sounds and another band can mix different cultures into the same song. And I mean, my friends and I would get together and, you know, raid the parents' liquor cabinet (laughs) and sit on the floor while Pink Floyd is just... You know, one stereo speaker was at one end of my bedroom and one was at the other. So if you put on a song like Stranglehold, the Ted Nugent song, and then of course that's going to become the mic song jam because I'm in, you know, my teens and I'm having this sound effect go across the room from one speaker through my skull to the other speaker at full volume and then back and forth over and over again. Of course that's going to make an impression on me. When I'm traveling, I like to put on FM radio still, and I feel like I'm sort of connected with the other people that happen to be on that station at that exact time.
3: This feeling of connection is something Mike experiences regularly in the live setting with Fish. On October 31st, 1994, Fish began a Halloween tradition of covering another group's album. This enabled the band to maintain that kinship with the crowd while also enhancing the experience as fish transformed into something of a radio station unto itself, broadcasting music that was new to many listeners' ears. Keyboard player Paige McConnell looks back.
4: I don't remember exactly where the prompting came from, but it was just one of those things where wouldn't it be cool if we put on a musical costume ourselves and uh, played another band's album in its
3: entirety? Drummer John Fishman compares the origins of the Halloween costume to the Baker's Dozen, although the latter concept had a much longer gestation period. The Providence Civic Center opened in 1972 and rebranded itself the Dunkin' Donuts Center in 2001, which prompted the 13-show run that eventually took place at Madison Square Garden.
5: Whatever year the Providence, Rhode Island Civic Center turned into the Dunkin' Donut Center. That was the year that the Baker's Dozen became an idea because we never had corporate sponsors, right? I think the conversation sort of started around, you know, like the Stones go out and have Miller beer Miller Presents the Rolling Stones or whoever, you know. We did a thing with Ben & Jerry's because it was Vermont and because the money goes to Waterwheel. And, but there have been other product lines that have pitched to us like hey would you guys sell us a song or would you would you know affiliate with their product in some way and and it just never felt right for whatever reason it just never was seemed like the right way to go so there was this conversations about to do or not do commercial product promotion whatever anyway i don't remember who one of us was like oh well here's a great idea we'll do 13 nights at the dunkin donut center and we'll get Dunkin' Donuts to sponsor it, and they'll make a different featured donut for each night, right? So Dunkin' Donuts would love that, and it'd be really funny for us. And then we were laughing about, oh, well, we'll do each night. It'll be a different donut. We'll also be a theme for the music. And so, like, we could have Boston Cream Night, and we could do a mashup of a Boston tune and a Cream tune, right? And we we'll ha-ha-ha-ha. Chuckle, chuckle, snort, snort, all right? And we were laughing about this shit for years.
3: Eventually, the idea took on its own momentum, and the band decided to move forward, changing the venue to MSG, which had a bigger capacity, opting for a stretch from July into August when there weren't conflicts with hockey, basketball, or other events.
5: That's a classic example of how we think and how we generally work, that ideas will come and go, but some really percolate, right? (laughs) Or some might say, fester. (laughs) The Halloween costume idea didn't take
3: quite as long to marinate. Let's use that word. In the fall 1994 newsletter, the band made the following announcement about what would take place at the Glens Falls Civic Center on October 31st. After a two-year hiatus, Halloween is back on the tour docket. This year's show will be a three-set affair beginning at 10 p.m. sharp. For this occasion, we need your help. We need your seasoned sagacity and impeccable taste to help pick out the ideal costume for us. That is, a musical costume. Think of any album from any genre, anything, from Slayer to Sun Ra to West Side Story, that you'd like to hear Fish play and send your suggestion to Halloween Costume. P.O. Box 130, Lexington, Mass., 02171. We'll pick from the most popular suggestions and play the album, or most of it. One point of note, beyond the range of album suggestions, the announcement never indicated that the band would perform the album with the most votes, just that Fish would select one from among the top choices. However, in 1994, Fish did perform the leading vote-getter, the Beatles' White Album, an epic undertaking, as it was a double album. In 1995, at the Rosemont Horizon outside of Chicago, Fish took on The Who's Quadrophenia. John Paluska, who was then managing the band, recalls that Quadrophenia was not the top vote getter during a year in which most fans reportedly voted for Frank Zappa's Joe's Garage, a triple album. Although, again, the newsletter had indicated that Fish would play a record chosen from your suggestions.
6: I don't think Quadrophenia won, that's for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think that they ultimately realized that there was so much work that was going to go into these things, and there were so many factors at play that they couldn't completely turn it over to people and just say, cast your votes, and whoever the number one is, we'll play it, you know? And I think the White Album probably was the most votes, though, actually. But yeah, I think it was more, send us your votes for inspiration, and if we see some momentum on a particular thing and it fits for us, we'll definitely do it. But I don't remember whether Joe's Garage was the top seller. I do remember that had some momentum.
1: <laughs> my memory of Quadrophenia was that it was an album that Paige was pushing for. Because honestly, that was not an album that I had spent a lot of time with. And that's my memory of it from band practice, was Paige maybe pushed that one a little harder. The one I wanted to do was Remain in Light. And I was obsessed with that idea. In 96 when we did it, it was not a well-known record. And I remember conversations in the office with people like, nobody's gonna know that record. And it's like, I don't care. It was the record that I learned how to play the guitar to. I never used a metronome or anything like that. I played to remain in light. I remember being absolutely obsessed with it being good and us doing a good job with it. And I think we did a pretty good job.
3: Since there was some concern as to whether fans would be familiar with the album, the band began a new Halloween tradition, which was the creation and distribution of the Fishbill, a riff on the Playbill one receives at a Broadway show. The Fishbill included an essay on the album to provide context, as well as some fake advertisements that played off the idea Fishman had mentioned earlier that the band was not keen on endorsements. Over the years, these ads have included Scent of a Fool fragrance, Time Turns Elastic Sweatpants, and Gourdeau, a sultry malt beverage made from fresh, vine-ripened tomatoes, full-bodied Alabama grapefruits, and stolen coffee liqueur. Back to Remain in Light, the Talking Heads' 1980 album was its third consecutive collaboration with influential producer and music artist Brian Eno. Brian Eno, in a strange
1: way, I think I was more of a fan of his without knowing it in those early 15, 16-year-old years, because I remember kind of hearing this college radio genesis kind of thing, and then like immediately diving into Lamb Lights down on Broadway, and then going straight to Remain in Light, and then My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, and then Another Green World, Taking Tiger Mountain, and I was like, oh, it was that guy that I liked all the time. I still listen to that stuff, him, and that he was collaborating and friends with so many of these people that I liked, right? And what a career that guy's had. What an impact on music he's had without anyone ever even really knowing it. Like, I remember walking through D'Agostino's in New York and hearing this song and being like, oh my God, that sounds like Eno. What a great hit song. And it was that Coldplay song. You know, the one about the head on the platter and all that stuff? I heard Eno before I heard Coldplay. It was Eno. You 2 that's Eno. Listen, God bless them, and they're a great band, they're a wonderful band, but the Joshua Tree or whatever, that's Eno. it sounds like Eno, it sounds like Lanois and
3: Eno. And how close has Fish come to performing that early Genesis double album, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, during Halloween's past?
1: I have asked Peter Gabriel probably two or three times, quietly and with my tail between my legs, reached out. He doesn't want to do it, of course. And I understand that completely being such a huge fan of his solo work. And that's the stuff that I'm most a fan of. And this was the thing that he did when he was very young and 18, 19 years old still. <laughs> I think it would have been unbelievable. But I will admit that I even did a teeny little reach out before Cosmod box. Just a teeny like, hey, man. I'm kind of, like, asking, you know, why not?
0: Relationships are hard, and that's why I'm here. Hey, friend, it's Cammie Crawford. Think of me as your big sister slash audible BFF that you could always trust to give you the realty. This is my show, Relationship the advice podcast that covers all relationship topics. Send your story to hello at relationship or DM me at relationship on IG and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Listen and follow relationship with Tammy Crawford on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker. your happy host of the for the love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about, and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're gonna bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker, a Four Eyes Media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The Fish curatorial experience is certainly not exclusive to Halloween, although it's been most direct and concentrated in that setting. In the original newsletter announcement, the band encouraged fans to think of any album from any genre, just as the group has done with its cover tunes and original songs. Ari Fink, who has been a Fish fan ever since his first show in August 1998, is the program director and on air host at Sirius XM's Fish Radio. By the way, this is where one can hear directly from the band members on their musical enthusiasms. Via John Fishman's weekly show, The Errant Path, and through regular programming. Just the other day, I heard Paige talking about King Crimson's debut record.
7: These guys, classify music in their own unique ways there is absolutely no convention to the way that their brains work when it comes to music and analyzing sounds I mean the only thing that matters is what resonates and what inspires them and what happens to inspire them happens to be wild and weird and off the wall and not necessarily accepted as popular in most cases, that's one very apparent thread is that the music that they love is not necessarily loved by all, but it is loved deeply by one group of people. And where that intersects is absolutely fascinating. I mean, it all kind of comes back to a Fish fan who can bounce from Frank Zappa to Bluegrass to Fusion in one 120 minute span and then maybe land on some obscure indie rock just to cleanse the palate. I mean that's a very specific individual who understands that genres don't matter and boundaries are completely fabricated and that all these things are social conventions that mean nothing ultimately and the only thing that truly matters is the music, that you love and that resonates within you.
3: One such fan is Dan Berkowitz, the founder of CID Entertainment. His introduction to the concert business came when he lingered after an Albany Fish show in 1999, a glow in what he had just witnessed.
8: You know, we were those two guys in the arena at the end of the show, like long after everyone else has left, just sitting in our seats, just like, whoa. And we were there for so long, the house lights were up, people started breaking down the stage. And until then, it hadn't really clicked for me that there even was a music industry. This is how in front of the curtain I was, if you will. And I saw people breaking down the stage, and I'm like, right. So it's not all magic. It doesn't just magically happen that when we show up, you know, there's already people inside the venue, and the lights go down, and the band lights go up, and the sound happens, and everybody's having a great time. And before that, I hadn't even thought that there was a music industry.
3: Dan would go on to become tour manager for the Disco Biscuits. And in 2007, he started CID, which offers VIP ticketing and travel packages, and has also created its own destination events, including Fish's Riviera Maya, which will return to Mexico in February 2020.
8: They introduced me to bluegrass music, and I think that they introduced a lot of people to a lot of different types of music. You know, as a uh, Jewish kid growing up in suburban Philadelphia, no one was really introducing me to bluegrass music, especially some of, like, the classics. And I think that Fish did that for a lot of people, and the fact that Fish could play, you know, psychedelic rock or prog rock, if you will, or bluegrass music or funk or blues... I think they introduced so many people to so many different types of music, and that's what kept it fresh and kept it interesting. Here's Mike. Early on, it felt like if we were going to have a gig that was what I
4: called a tour of the world's gig, where every style was used from one to the next to the next, I didn't like those gigs because they were too scattered for me. It just was kind of like watering down each genre by slamming it against another one. So I think that can be taken too far. And then sometimes to go out and see a great blues guitar player or something where that's all they did since they were two years old was so refreshing (laughs) because it's just one thing. So I think it could be taken too far, but on the other hand, it's nice not to be pigeonholed in your influences and to be able to look outside pushing out of your own comfort zone by opening your ears to a lot of different kinds of music and then other arts too. fish playing bluegrass songs, as an example, because I was the first one that brought some bluegrass songs, I went on this trip with a girlfriend <laughs> to Nashville for the first time years and years ago, and we went to the Station Inn, which is like the world's premier bluegrass club, and there weren't too many people there, but the band played Uncle Penn, and we danced, and it was just a joyous moment, and you know, then we heard it on a Ricky Skaggs' album live in London, which we used to play in the van. And it's like, we can cover this. Now we're not authentic growing up in the mountains type people, we're not. We grew up in the suburbs and we went to prep schools and things like that. However, that song and that moment got into my soul. So I might not be as authentic, but at least I like to hope that I'm coming from a place of passion.
3: Dan was a Jewish kid growing up in suburban Philadelphia. So the fact that Fish performed its own take on the Jewish prayer Avinu Malkanu, typically sandwiched within the tray instrumental The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday, enabled Dan to suggest to his parents that seeing Fish was akin to attending temple.
8: Which in certain respects,
3: perhaps it was.
8: I played my parents Avinu Malcanu. I was like, look! It's like basically going to shul, like that's all I'm doing, you know, like I'm going with my friends and they play Avinu volcano. so like I can definitely go to this a couple times and that definitely helped bridge that gap. So I think that there's definitely something there where a lot of high school aged kids got out of the house because they convinced their parents that it was okay because the band played Avinu volcano. I don't think they bought that it was like going to shul, but I think that it definitely made them feel a little bit better.
4: So I went to Jewish day school and, you know, there's by fourth grade or whatever, 45 minutes of prayers in Hebrew in the morning that a class member is running. And But regardless of that, what's amazing is that I was remembering that there are a thousand little melodies and from different parts of Judaism, they might choose different melodies or different generations for the same prayers. It's just baffling this language of melodies that we were inundated with at a young age, and it's a beautiful thing. And so I wanted to say that, like, as with Uncle Penn, as wanting to bring something to the table from a heartfelt place, even though it's a holy prayer that you often say when you're taking the Torah out, which is kind of an extra holy moment that you wouldn't really exploit for your rock and roll purposes. So some people could see it as being sacrilegious to do that prayer and we play it in five four and with a funk slapping the bass and etc. However, what I wanted to say is that in my temple, which is also a Reformed temple growing up, the rabbi was Lawrence Kushner, who's very well published author on Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. And he would do a Havdalah service, which he also did at my bar mitzvah and my brother's bar mitzvah coming over our house. And the Havdalah is the end of the Sabbath where you take a braided candle and right when the sun is going down, you dip it into wine and then it goes out and the sun is kind of over the horizon. And the candle goes out. And he would take that same melody from at least the melody we used for Avino volcano. and he just used it for everything. So as the sun's going down and the light's coming through these stained glass windows and the candle's going into the wine, he would go lie, 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 Take it to the bridge now. So that was a poignant moment. And I didn't really take in everything about the beliefs and the stories. I rebelled against it somewhat. But both at school and at that temple, when a moment like that happened, it was getting not just into my ears, but into my soul. And so when I'm bringing that song to the table, in some ways, maybe not at every moment, but I'm referencing back to an experience that was a deep soul experience for me using that melody. And then with Trey's beautiful first part, I'm going to get my head sharpened or whatever it's called. What is it called? The man who stepped into yesterday. Oh, it used to be called the man who stepped into yesterday and I'm going to get my head sharpened. Now it's just the man who stepped into yesterday, I guess. Maybe head sharpened was lobbed out. But anyway. I mean, it's kitschy and it's overly eclectic, but it does, in the same way, bringing in like a Minken painting and making that kind of connection with the world around us, or looking at the audience and taking in their energy. It's another way of doing that and saying, okay, two band members are Jewish, and there's this sort of experience in our beings that maybe me more than fish, but saying, well, we're going to let this connection live here. And this is part of what we are, and we're going to let it for a moment live and breathe here in this song and this medley.
3: Fish has always maintained a two-way communication with its fan base. So it's not surprising that in 2001, some of the group's fans took the lead on a curatorial project, a two CD set titled Sharon in the Groove, celebrating the music of Fish. Artists who interpreted Fish tunes included Jimmy Buffett, Dave Matthews, Little Feet, The Boredoms, The Wailers, and Tom Club, the group founded by Talking Heads members Chris Franz and Tina Wayman. Speaking of Tom Tom Club, it's time for a special public service announcement. Talking Heads, first record. I love that record. I
1: think that's one of the best records ever. Ever. I still listen to it all the time. Kids, Talking Heads 77. And by the way, all four members of the actual original Talking Heads are still alive. I've got no compassion. So many people have their problems. I know that the four band members have their problems, but I'm not interested in their
2: problems.
1: (laughs) Don't expect me to explain your indecision. Talk to your analyst. Isn't that what he's paid for? You walk, you talk. You still function like you used to. So do one show or one tour just for me before somebody isn't with us anymore. And no extra musicians no really great funk bass players just for one more night my favorite bass player of all time tina weymouth who i saw live numerous times when i was in high school and stood in front of with a doughy eyed look (laughs) in love (laughs) and jerry
3: harrison's incredible guitar playing
1: anyway off that subject
3: now (laughs) Fair enough. The executive producer of Sharon in the Groove was Ellis Goddard, who is now a professor of sociology at California State University Northridge. He was still an undergrad at the University of Virginia when he discovered the fishnet via the band's newsletter. He later became part of the team that formed the Mockingbird Foundation, a nonprofit that supports music education. Goddard, who is also the executive director of Mockingbird, had no experience in the music industry, yet he took command of the Sharon in the Groove project to help raise additional funds for the organization. Jimmy Buffett, whose own charitable foundation advised Goddard and the Mockingbird team, was one of the first to sign on, performing Fish's Gumbo. Here's Ellis.
2: Jimmy Buffett leased the entire core release band to a studio in Nashville, I'm told laid out 35, 40 grand for the week and recorded a beautiful track on his dime. So we wouldn't have been what we are without Mr. Buffett's help and uh, want to thank him whenever we can.
3: Dave Matthews was another important early get.
2: Dave was supposed to fly back to Seattle Three days in the little tour, and he had a cold. You can kind of hear his raspiness on that version of Waste, but blew off the trip and recorded solo in a warehouse. And it, it's fantastic. It still brings in royalty money to fundraise for music education every week through online services. They were 200 bucks last week. It's phenomenal.
3: Sharon in the Groove consists of two discs, and Goddard explains the thought process behind the album sequencing.
2: It's presented as a two set show. The first disc or the first set is like a fish show, a little more straightforward, shorter songs, a little catchier, maybe a little poppier. The second disc, the second set gets way out there. One of the organizing schemes was the two set show. Another organizing scheme was this isn't bands that were influenced by fish. These are bands that influenced fish. So, across the two discs, there are 13 or 14 different genres, and the idea was to represent all of the different kinds of music that Fish plays and that have melded into Fish's sound.
3: The original music of other artists has also been introduced to Fish fans over the PA system before and after the band takes the stage. Fish has long preferred to tour without opening acts, as John Paluska reflects.
6: They didn't really like to come on stage after an opening act. The opening act has already kind of altered the mood and created a certain energy with the audience. And so they would have to start with that instead of starting with a blank slate. And part of it was too, they wanted to play really long shows and labor is expensive and there's curfews. So for them, generally they were going to hit the stage at eight o'clock and most nights Most places had 11 o'clock curfews, and then you went into overtime with stagehands and all these other not insignificant considerations. And for them, it was like, we want the whole three hours. We got plenty to say. However, it would not be a completely
3: blank slate because in the early days, soundman Paul Languedoc would play entire albums before and after the band's sets. In the process, he served as a curator, sharing music from a variety of acts including the Miles Davis album A Tribute to Jack Johnson, the opening sequence of which has been interpreted for the theme to this podcast. Two early enthusiasts of his DJ work, Jason Colton and Patrick Jordan, would go on to take management roles with Fish. Here's Jason. Before I even started working with
9: the band, I was totally fascinated with what Paul would put on. and. At the same time that Fish was kind of opening my ears to bluegrass and jazz and Calypso and, you know, just kind of other sounds that I wasn't used to hearing as like a kid in high school listening to classic rock and British New Wave and whatever else I was listening to at the time, I remember being at a show in Connecticut and hearing the Tony Rice unit. He would play Backwaters, which is just a bluegrass record, and I I went up to him, like, hey, what are you playing? And, and I think I asked him that question quite a bit before I, I had ever even met the band or started working with them. And in that era, obviously, Paul was playing CDs, and he would have a small number of them. So certain albums that he played really could make an impression on the Fish audience, you know, from The Lounge Lizards, madeski Martin Wood, Michelle Nidigeo Cello, Miles Davis, Jack Johnson, of course, which you're using as your theme music, which, you know, why are you using it as your theme music? It has a Pavlovian response to a fish fan who went to those shows at that time. It really puts you in the place of
3: remembering where you were. Paul is rather plain spoken about his role in this capacity.
10: Oh, it was pretty simple. I mean, I wanted to play something that if people wanted to listen to it, they could listen to it and go, oh, that's cool. But if they didn't wanna listen to it, it wouldn't be overbearing. Like if they wanted to talk to their friend, they would be in the background and it wouldn't bother them. So it was mostly obviously instrumental stuff. And it was just stuff that I liked mostly. I think I was getting into Pink Martini towards the end of my tenure. That strikes a chord. You can always go back to Patsy Cline for walkout anyway. I was into Tom Jones for walkout music. I don't recall. I think sometimes the band might hand me something. Sometimes they would say, you know, that they've heard one or another album too much or something. And I did tend to kind of overplay some things. I think sometimes I'd hear from fans like, oh, you play this every night. But I just would be into it.
3: When Fish returned from its second hiatus in 2009, Paul retired from the road to focus on making guitars. His successor, Gary Brown, was happy to cede the playlist task to the Fish team, including Jason. Patrick, and Julia Mordaunt, who currently work from a Spotify playlist. This allows them to call an audible based on what's happening locally, such as the weather before the walkout music. They prefer to leave discussions of musical matters to the band, but I would like to clear up one point. At the conclusion of The Baker's Dozen, the first song was Billy Joel's New York State of Mind. Since Joel has a monthly residency at the Garden, some fans interpreted this as trolling him, but in fact it was meant as a respectful gesture of handing the keys back to the piano man as for halloween the event has taken a turn over the past decade in 2010 fish performed little Feat's waiting for columbus but since then has shied away from covering other artists in 2013 fish performed a set of original material then dubbed wingsuit the next year It was the chilling, thrilling sounds of The Haunted House, a narrated sound effects album that the band interpreted with the help of Chris McGregor, whose work we discussed in Episode 7. In 2016, the year of David Bowie's death, they honored him with the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Last year, they created original music, even as they purported to cover, Scandinavian artist Kasvat Voxed with their interpretation of the fictional 1981 record I Rock. John Fishman looks back on these recent efforts, which he says were prompted by Fish's ongoing spirit to explore new terrain.
5: We had debuted our own album once with mixed results, you know, because it wasn't really a finished album. And a lot of the things that got fleshed out in that concert ended up not getting on the album. It wasn't a finished thing. And I remember, you know, that conversation was kind of like we debuted an album at Halloween, which is a cool idea, but we didn't do that quite right. And then we did this thing where we did original music for the Haunted House one, which just had narration as a guide, and we wrote the music for all that. And we made a big set with Chris McGregor, which was cool visually. And the Cosvot Vox stuff, since it was all gonna be brand new and just hitting people, it was kind of like, let's just make this a dance party, you know, keep it simple and have it just be fun because it's all gonna be new. And, you know, you don't wanna ask so much of people that you lose that connection. Still,
3: another contributing factor is alluded to by Scott Bernstein. Scott founded YemBlock in 2009, as something of a successor to Andy Gadeal's Fish page in sharing real time set lists and related tidbits. Here, he talks about Fish's curatorial impact on his own musical engagement.
11: I got into Fish when I was 16 years old, and while I was a 16 year old, I was fairly knowledgeable about music. But I would learn lessons and learn about music I'd never heard before at nearly every Fish show. They covered so many bands I had never heard of before. I got into Zappa because I loved Fish's cover of Peaches on Regalia. I only knew once in a lifetime before Fish played the Halloween set when they did Remain in Light. But by the time the first song ended, when I listened back to that, musical costume, I fell in love with that album. I wasn't that familiar with Loaded before Fish covered the Velvet Underground album on Halloween in 1998. Three days later, I went and purchased the album and it's still one of my favorite albums to this day. There's so much music that Fish introduced me to and wildly different music. And it wasn't only the music that they played, it was also the music that they talked about Trey would constantly bring up My Bloody Valentine and Pavement in different interviews. And even though uh, they only covered one Pavement song once and never covered My Bloody Valentine outside of a sound check. I was introduced to those bands through just even them talking about it. And I find one of the most interesting connections between Ween and Fish. In the Fish update, John Fishman was singing Ween's praises back in 1993. Fish teased Push Little Daisies in early 1993. And then four years later, they started playing Roses Are Free when Ween wasn't even playing that song. And Ween kind of took it back a few months later when they started playing it, and it's been a staple of their repertoire ever since. So they're great judges of music, and I like being introduced to new music by them. At the time, they were the Spotify. They were playing uh, three or four covers a night and probably half of them were from outside of certainly my knowledge base and I don't think there were many people that were familiar with bands like Hot Rice before Fish was covering their songs. So I certainly wanted to learn about the music that they thought enough of to cover and once I would hear a song on a tape, I'd certainly want to learn more about that artist. Scott
3: makes an important point. In certain circles, Fish was a version of Spotify before Spotify even existed, which explains in part why Fish's Halloweens in recent years have shifted away from covering other artists. There may be less urgency for the band to serve as curator, since these days, bands can do this for themselves. This is
1: why I think this is such a good era. I think Spotify is the greatest thing that's happened to music in all of my years of loving music. I think the effect that it's going to have, the way that people consume music over time has had such an effect on music. FM radio when I was in high school, there would be no Pink Floyd without FM radio. There would be no Steely Dan. College radio after that, which introduced me to King Crimson Discipline, first Talking Heads album. Stuart Copeland's The Rhythmatist solo album, which I liked, and I heard it on college radio, some college DJ, right? Then MTV, which shifted the whole focus of music in a way that I thought was really just god-awful towards the visual. Then CDs, right? Which almost seems like a weird nightmare now when I think about these giant CD stores. And now I talk to younger people in bands in their 20s And they're listening to everything because of Spotify. Hallelujah. It's also, they're listening to good music because why would you listen to anything crappy when in two seconds you can put something better on? I think that's a huge improvement. I'm knocked out by it. And I think there's going to be some great music coming now based on that. I think if you're listening to Kendrick Lamar and two seconds later listening to, you know, I'm a fool to do your dirty work, you know, and like, okay. And then one second later, listen to Albert King. And then one second later, listening to, you know, King Giz, which is the way people listen to music now. I'm just putting together playlists and sending to their friends. The music is going to get better. I think this is a huge plus in my humble opinion. And it's always the way I've listened to music. And Fish has covered, you know, bluegrass songs followed by... Whatever. I just have incredible hope for everyone who's 18, 17, 20 right now and has a phone in their pocket and headphones.
3: Next time on Long May They Run. To what extent is the Green Mountain state entwined within the fish DNA? What about New York? Colorado? In Episode 9, we'll examine the power of place. Long May They Run is a creation and production of C-13 Originals. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, Lloyd Lockridge, and me. Season 1 is written by me and directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Produced by Perry Crowell. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination by Terrence Malingone. And production support by Sean Cherry. Creative artwork by Kurt Courtney, press by Hilary Schuff, and marketing by Josephina Francis. The theme song is right off, written by Miles Davis, and performed by Kyle Hollingsworth, Jake Sinninger, Dave Watts, and Garrett Sayers. And mixed by Andrew Dros Liposchuk. A special thank you to Rich Schaefer, and to the band, band management, and all who participated in this season. It's after bedtime, the kids
0: are asleep, and the moms are out to play. We're Dina and Kristen, the duo behind the Instagram account Big Little Feelings. I'm Dina. I'm a child therapist and mom of two who nerds out on all things neurobiology and psychology. And Kristen is a parent coach who wrangles three kids on a daily basis, here to give it to us like it is. We weren't meant to do this parenting thing alone. Consider After Bedtime your village. Follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.